Scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We are going through uh, our sermon series on worship, and we are talking about the different ways that worship uh, is shaped, how it's shaped, and how it shapes our own lives as well. So it's not just something that we do here on Sunday morning, but it's something that we are able to take with us. That's why we do a liturgy. Liturgy means the work of the people, because it's not something that I perform as the pastor or something that Nick does as leading us in, in musical worship as well, but it's something that we all participate in that we can then take outside of this space with us, this time with us, to be able to continue to do as we live our lives. Call to worship is what we looked at a couple weeks ago. It's the invitation to come into worship of a mighty, generous, gracious God, one who is holy, 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 as we read and will continue to read uh, this morning. And so it is something that shapes our lives. Robert Weber, who is a uh, kind of a missiologist and, and uh, worship theologian, says, worship is faith in motion. The primary purpose of worship is to experience faith in the community of worship in such a way that the Christian faith is not merely known intellectually, but experienced as a reality. It's not something that we're not here just to garner our own uh, arguments against the culture wars and all of those things, to be able to win arguments of faith with our friends, to know things intellectually about who God is. And this is not a Facebook profile. This is experiencing God in the fullness of the reality of our lives, not just confined to this space. And we do it over and over and over again because we need to be reminded. We need to believe again. We go through our lives. There are so many other things that we come in contact to that take away, um, that, that go against who we are as children of God, as God, as a good and gracious Father. They tell us lies about who God is, and they tell us lies about who we are as well. And so we come back to worship again on a regular basis to be able to be reminded that we need to believe again over and over and over again. We are forgetful people. I forget 
things all the time. Sometimes I forget the names of my kids, right? That's why we say, uh, Joshua, Michael, I'm Evelyn. Evelyn, get your stuff together, right? Um, because we've, or I just call them the dog's name. Uh, but because we are forgetful people, and it's so easy to forget who we are and who God is in this life. This morning we were talking about confession and absolution, something that we do uh, every every Sunday. It's a part of our worship, one of the initial things that we do. They are in a particular order because they lead us through an invitation to come and worship God and to be in his presence, to confess our sins, which is our immediate reaction um, as we see Isaiah does when he's in the presence of God, to be absolved of our sins in that as well as God's gracious act toward us. We pray the Psalms, we pray for one another, we pass peace because once we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. We listen to his word and be reminded of who we are um, and who he is, and then we eat. And so we. these are some of the practices that we do. So we're moving through these practices this morning is confession and absolution. I would love to know a time when you've let someone know that you are not okay and it backfired. When have you confessed to someone and it just gone wrong? clarity of mind in that moment for yeah. you though yeah absolutely uh, yeah work that kind of stuff happens at work all the time doesn't it yeah 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 thanks Brian ditto <laughs> Yeah, 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 wow, yeah. Some clarity for that, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the time. We should on people all the time, so that's one of Stacy's favorite phrases. 
to not shoot on people. So, yeah, we don't want to shoot on people. We don't want to shoot on people here at the table. Uh, we want to be a safe place uh, where it's okay to not be okay. Um, and it's and it's so hard to create these places because what we've experienced in work or other relationships uh, often is when we admit a mistake, whether it's really small or really big, and we've, act, as you said, Brennan, acted out of generosity and grace and forgiveness towards other people, we don't always experience that back from them, uh, very much, unfortunately. And so we want to create the kind of environment, the kind of place, the kind of community and church we want to be is a place where people can admit that they're not okay. As I was preparing, I was reminded of, um, as I said, we, we thought we would go to Chicago and plant a church there. And there's a church planning organization network called X29. And so they were kind of the assessing organization for us as we thought we were going to go there. Uh, Stacy and I had been married a few years, and we were in St. Louis, and we were going to go back up to Chicago where I had been. And so they had this, I mean, it was like 40 hours of online kind of stuff. And some of it was like, what sins are you dealing with? And so I was quite honest about, um, you know, really like lots of sins, uh, pornography being one of them and the struggle with that that I was having at that time. And they took that and just completely bulldozed me in it. And it was something that God had been working on me in my heart for quite a long time and was delivering me from, but they just came down on me with the full force of the law, um, without any grace, without any mercy. And both Stacy and I were sitting in there uh, in, this, in this interview together, and that was the only thing that they focused on. Well, it wasn't the only thing. The other thing they told me is that I have a problem with authority, which I would say is like what qualifies you to go plan church. But... Um, and, and I had to make a joke there because it makes me uncomfortable for us to confess our sins to one another, to be open about um, many different issues that we face, especially ones of sexual nature, uh, ones of financial nature, things like that. We have a hard time dealing with those. God doesn't have a hard time dealing with those. He knows us. He sees us and he loves us, the fullness of who we are, and he invites us continually back into relationship with him. One of the things that as we've moved here, and this is the first time that we've really lived in a suburban context since leaving the, uh, the suburban context of our youth, is the facades that we have here in this place. It is so easy to pull into our garage, into our driveway, to go into our house, and to see everything is just beautiful on the outside, and it looks great. One of the things that I love about this neighborhood is how beautiful it is, but also behind closed doors, like I know how much I yell at my kids even though I don't want to. I know how much uh, strife there can be in our own home, even in uh, as we are willing to admit and gracious to forgive one another. But when we don't have that, what is happening behind these facades? We're so image conscious that we don't want to let people know that we're not okay. As I said, God is okay with us not being okay. And the church perpetuates this so often, right? Like we go into a church, we think either we think we have to have it all together or churches present themselves in such a way that 
people have to have it all together before they can come into a relationship with God. But at the core of our faith, the reason we need the reason Jesus came is because we are not okay. We are sinful people, and I'll continue to explain what that means. Um, but it's okay to admit that we're not okay. The gospel reminds us that we are more messed up than we care to admit, but we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We are more messed up than we even know and can admit, but we are more loved than we care, uh, than we can imagine. It's God's kindness that moves us to repentance. It's God, God's kindness that causes us that, that when we confess our sins to him, when we come to him in confession and absolution, he meets us in his kindness. Um, and God takes care of two parts, the things that we can repent of and the things that are repairable. And so as but right before we get into this, Mark 2, uh, we've, we did we preached a sermon on this a while ago, but in Mark 2, Jesus, uh, the, Mark, the gospel writer of Mark tells a story of four friends that bring uh, a paralytic, a man, a sick man, to Jesus. And they tear the roof off and they bring, uh, drop him down before him. And Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And everyone there is aghast because only God can forgive sins. And then he says, what's easier to do, to forgive his sins or to tell him to get up and walk? And then he says, get up and walk. So he both forgives his sins, the things that he, is, he can be repentant of, that he can change in his life, that God wants to heal. But he also heals us of those things that are repairable as well. He works two things in us, in confession and absolution. So we come to God, we come in worship, in confession and absolution, because it is a practice that reminds us that our God is a God of grace and forgiveness. And in doing so, confession and absolution is an act of humility, it's an act of honesty, and it's an act of hope. Humility, honesty, and hope. Again, this is not like self-discovery. This isn't self-reflection. We're not uh, doing this to search out and to kind of um, uh, flagellate ourselves before God, but it's something that when we come into the presence of a holy and living God, he meets us there and we immediately go, we confess our sins and our need of him and his forgiveness. It's a poignant reminder that we have not arrived, nor have those around us arrived. Humility, honesty, and hope. Humility, look at uh, this, the beginning part of this passage again. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. The year that King Uzziah died, the year that the king died, Isaiah was caught up and went to the throne room of God. This is a reminder uh, for uh, the people of God uh, and for Isaiah that 
we see all these kings reigning and ruling and doing all of these things. And the year that he died, the year that the kingdom lost its independence as well, the uh, Babylonians, is that right? The Babylonians, Assyrians. Okay, I was going to say Assyrians, but I doubted in my mind. The Assyrians were coming in to conquer uh, this kingdom, uh, that the Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And so Isaiah was prophesying there uh, for them. And so the king, as this kingdom is losing its independence, its autonomy, who everything that it thought it was, Isaiah is caught up into the throne room to see that God still reigns and rules. His robe filled the entire, his robe, and it, it actually says the train, the, the hem, just that part that, that seals it all together, fills the entire throne room. It says the whole earth is full of his glory, all of it spreading out. Uh, amongst uh, uh, everywhere, everything that we see. And so Isaiah is caught up in there, and these seraphim, these angels are flying around, and they're singing holy, holy, holy three times. This is the word set apart uh, in the Hebrew. Holy is not this nice, clean, easy word that we uh, think of. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, holy, holy, holy is not needlepoint. It's not, it's revolution. Holy is not a pious, pastel-tinted word. It's blazing. It's alive. The most attractive quality, the most intense experience we will get out of sheer life. Holiness is a furnace that transforms men and women who enter it. And this is not just a singular, singular holiness that God has. It's not even a double holiness that he has. It's a cubed, a three times holiness. Hebrew, whenever, when, when they want to say something is very holy, they'd say holy, holy. But when they're saying he's holy, 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 they're saying he's very, 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 very holy. That kind of a holiness that we have. And then Isaiah responds and says, Woe in me, I am lost. He's in the throne room of God, and you have these seraphim that are flying around with six wings. Two of them just serve the purpose of covering themselves before God. No one could see God and live, and so the angels of the Lord even would cover their face before him so that they wouldn't see the face of God. And then they covered their feet, which is a euphemism for nakedness. They, didn't, they couldn't be naked before God because that would destroy them as well. And then they had two wings that would fly them around as they sung their praises uh, to glorify him. And Isaiah finds himself there, and he says, I am lost. I should not be here. Um, I am not going to live if I am in the presence of of God. This is his immediate reaction when he comes into the presence of God. I am lost. I should not be here. Because confession and, uh, and absolution acknowledges our place before a holy cubed God. It is not where we should be when we come into the presence of God. And immediately, again, it's not self-discovery. It's not self-reflection. It is how we meet this holy God. It's humility. And it's not, humility gets thrown around a lot, right? Humility is a word that we misunderstand quite often. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's not putting ourselves lower than what we should be, but it's thinking of ourselves less. So it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. And Isaiah acknowledges that when he says, woe is me. 
I am lost. I should not be here. Often when we think of uh, confession and absolution, we think of shame. We are bad people. We uh, have guilt is that which is, says we did something wrong. Shame says you are wrong. We do this quite often. Uh, unfortunately, this happens just naturally somehow for some reason in parenting. You go to this when people are bad, right? Like that's our kids are beginning to discover that there are bad people out there. But in confession and absolution, we're saying they're not bad people. What they do is bad. You are not a bad person. We're not heaping shame on you. We're heaping humility, which says that grace is enough. It's not saying shame on you. It's saying grace on you. This is the reaction that we see here. We were up in the mountains this weekend, or yesterday, this weekend, yesterday, and we drove through Rocky Mountain National Park. We've been in Rocky Mountain National Park before, but we'd never driven through it. And we drove all the way up to the very top, uh, 12,000 something feet, and these just cliffs and mountains are absolutely amazing. And it was kind of like, oh, I should not be here. Like, I wouldn't be able to be here. I can't imagine someone coming up here for the first time. But I didn't think so much of myself and who I am, it was so overwhelming, the majesty, the glory of this creation that I forgot myself in it. It was all I could do. We had to stop several times because I was driving and I wanted to be able to look at this thing, but totally forgot who we were in this place. The wind is whipping around. It's cold. It's, it's, we're above the tree line, and we're looking down these deep valleys and just going, oh, my God, you are amazing. What you have done, what you have created is beautiful. We forget ourselves in the act of confession and absolution. Worship is not a nice, comfortable practice. It's a place to be not okay. It reminds us that an all-powerful God is at work beyond what we can see. That God is at work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, so that we're not thinking less of ourselves, but we're thinking of ourselves less, and we're thinking more of who God is. Look, again, verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right, The King Uzziah has died, and now Isaiah is brought up into the throne room of God, and he says, Here's the King, here's the One, who reigns and rules above everything. And he immediately confesses who, what he has done and who, um, how he has sinned. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a people of unclean lips. It's specific, it's personal, and it's corporate. It's specific in saying what I have said, how I have used my mouth, has not glorified God, has not, uh, um, has not named him as king. It's named other kings. It's personal because he says, this is something I have done, but it's something that has affected all of the people around him. When we sin, we affect the people that are around us. We often think that sin is, some, some sin is personal. It's only between, uh, it's only affecting me, but it affects those around us. Sin is separation, and it's separation from ourselves, 
separation from others, and it's separation from God. Often, often sin is putting ourselves in the place of God, and it's saying, I can make my own decisions. I can choose what is right and good for me rather than God. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden when the snake came to to Eve and said, did God really say this? And she kind of misquoted him. And Well, surely not. You can make this decision on your own. You can put yourself in the place of God. But it separates us from ourselves, from others, and from God. Uh, some of the conf- sometimes we use the confession that says, um, I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, the things that I have done and the things that I have left undone as well. We often think of sin as acts that we do or acts that we haven't done, things that we should have done. But sin is also a power. It's a power that says that we can be in a place of God. But it's also a judge's gavel in condemning us, again, telling us shame on you. It's a power that Christ has come to release us from. When we name things, when we practice confession and absolution, it's an act of honesty because it acknowledges and admits our need of a Savior, someone outside of ourselves, and it brings to light the hidden brokenness. Christ says that nothing brought into the light can stay in the darkness. For us to be healed, we need someone else to come and heal us, which is acknowledging and being honest about the brokenness in our lives. One of the things that I don't want to be is honest about Haley's state of health. I go, the only thing, right? No, yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) catch we don't want to be, you know, honest about our own health sometimes. But when I look at her, I go, well, she's laying there. She's fine. She's not coughing right now. But the only outward issue that she has is a cough. But the reality is that in the last year, her tumor has doubled in size, that she's not doing great. She's slowing down eating. But I didn't want to take her back to the vet and do an x-ray and to find out all those things because that tells me and reminds me that, Um, she's not going to be here forever, and that we have to be honest about how she can be healed, and she's in the last stages of her life. But I do that with myself. I do that with my back. I do that with um, not finding physical therapy to go to. I'll just pop a pill, and I'll feel better, sort of, uh, for most of the days. But in order for us to be honest, well, when we are honest about ourselves, Jesus is able to bring his healing his hope, his honesty into our lives, um, and his righteousness so that we can be healed to bring things into uh, light. Again, Peterson says this, Our sins aren't that interesting. It's God's work that's interesting. Sin is diminishing, dehumanizing, and soon dull. But forgiveness and salvation, that's a different story. Everything, every time it happens, it's fresh, original, catching us, uh, um, catching us outside. I don't, anyway, <laughs> I think I wrote that down right, but okay. It's original, it's fresh. But I love, I, when I was reading this, I, I just cracked up. Sin, our sin isn't that interesting. Like it's the same over and over and over again. He says, well, we sin like we we just fall into ruts with this and we do the same things over and over and over again. But God's grace 
comes at us afresh, anew, every time, catching us off guard. And in doing so, we find hope. We find hope in Christ and what he does for us. Verse 6 through 8 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Upon confessing his sins, the seraphim goes to the altar where the place of sacrifice is made and takes a coal, the blood dripping down upon it and brings it to his mouth and touches it and cleanses the exact part of Isaiah that he has said is sinful. He is clean. His lips have been cleaned and he has given grace upon grace upon grace. As much grace as God is holy, grace cubed. This happens in our relationships, both personal and corporate as well. And what God wants to be able to do is for us to participate with him in his ministry of reconciliation. So immediately then, he says, your lips have been cleaned and your sin is atoned for. And God says, who can I send for us? Who can go to the people to tell them about who I am, that I am still king and still reign and rule in this place. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Immediately, God calls uh, Isaiah to participate with him in the very act that he, that his lips to be a prophet for him, to tell the people about him, that very thing that has sinned against God, he then uses to be able to dispense grace that God has for him. It's a call and a vocation, which is participation in what God is doing in this place. Confession and absolution is an act of hope because more than forgiveness, it gives us the participation in what God is doing. It gives us a calling. It gives us purpose in the place of who God is. When we were coming out here to Denver, um, I was in, in, in a challenging place, really um, questioning uh, what I was doing, what God was doing in our lives, and how he was going to continue to use us if pastoral ministry was that, if we were going to look at somewhere else, and what we were going to be doing. And I was at, uh, we were living in Tulsa as we were transitioning out here, and I was at a swim lesson for Michael, and really, just really kind of down. And I opened uh, my prayer app that I had that day, and uh, just was like, well, if I'm going to sit here, I don't need to see kids like half drown um, like I'm going to read and pray because this is what's really going on in my life. And what the prayer app moved me to or opened for me was Psalm 66. And it opens with this great joyous uh, shout for joy to God, this kind of call of song and praise. And then it gets to this place in verse 5. It says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in deeds uh, towards, the, uh, towards the children of man. And down in verse 11, it says, or verse 10, it says, For you, O God, have tested us, and you have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. And that's exactly what it felt like I had experienced being honest and open about some of the things that I needed in the previous place of work and just feeling absolutely crushed. And here the psalmist is saying, 
God allowed that to happen, which sucks. And then he follows it up with this line. And yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And then he goes on and he says, so I will worship you. I will offer my, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. And then he invites others to come in. He says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. It moves from what we experience in our lives, what I had experienced, to going, but God is going to bring me into a place of abundance. God is going to give me the voice of praise on my mouth so that I can continue to worship him and that I can continue to call others into a life of faith, of participating with him in this ministry of reconciliation. This is what we are called to be able to do. When God forgives us, we are then able to go out and forgive others as well. Confession and absolution isn't just a Sunday morning practice, but it's something that we can do throughout our entire lives as well. Don't go to your boss right away. Like, maybe we've established that. Like, we could probably tell stories for days, but start small. Create this culture in your family. When we wrong our kids, we confess and we say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I yelled. I'm sorry I was mad. I was actually mad about this thing or that thing. Um, but, or, you know, you really aren't listening to me, but I needed to get your attention, but I'm still sorry that I acted the way that I did. Will you forgive me? And we require that of them as well to confess uh, their, what they have done that has been wrong. We did it as soon as we got home last night. Evelyn and Michael were starting to go after each other, and we said, okay, what did you do? Why did you do it? Apologize, apologize. Now let's move into this place of reconciliation. Because it's not that we wrong each other is the problem. It's not going to one another with forgiveness and offering that and receiving that with them as well. Confessing and ab- uh, confession and absolution. How is God inviting you to participate with him? in this ministry of reconciliation and confession and absolution? To whom do you need to go to ask forgiveness, to start creating this culture in your family and with those around you? Isaiah's name in Hebrew is Yesha Yehu, which means God saves. It is a continual reminder to the people when he goes back to them to be a prophet to them, to speak God's words of both judgment and grace for them to come and enter into their relationship with God in a way that it is God who saves. There was another person that was sent from God to his people, Jesus. His name in Hebrew is Yeshua, not Yeshayahu, but Yeshua, which means God is salvation, reminding us that our need of him and our need of his righteousness to give us, uh, to be the embodiment of grace and truth in our lives and to remind us of our need of humility, honesty, and hope. It's in Christ that we find our salvation and that God saves. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your 
move of grace and mercy in our lives for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Remind us that it's okay to not be okay, that you are the God who forgives, the God who is gracious, that is holy times three and pours out grace times three on our lives as well, over and over and over again. Help us to be honest with you, to be honest before you, and to be able to extend the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, and the grace that you have extended to us, to other people as well. Lord, help us, help us not to hope in other people when we confess to them that we have made mistakes, Lord, but help us to hope in you that no matter what happens to us, we have grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. God saves. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.